Hi guys, I'm Sean McCambridge. For over 20 years, I've been inquisitive, learning and experimenting with different ways to leverage our greatest asset, our minds, to work for us rather than against us. Join me as I engage with these inspirational guests to provide you knowledge and insights to help you achieve more. This show is sponsored by Stellar Recruitment and inspired by a company purpose and why, which is inspiring growth and changing lives. Thanks very much for tuning in. We're super lucky, guys, to have Jimmy Hunt joining us here today, talking about this great uh, concept of mental fitness as distinct to resilience. Amazing guy. He's lived a, a really interesting journey in life thus far and picked up some amazing practical things to help your mental fitness, and not only you, but obviously the people around you. So I've got real confidence that you'll enjoy the podcast today. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us here today. We had a wonderful time a couple of weeks ago in, uh, in not so sunny Auckland that particular day, but uh, it was wonderful to catch up with you and sort of listen to you about your your journey and your story and, and I guess your, your purpose moving forward. But uh, for those that don't know you as well as perhaps what I do now, but you've been involved in things like the Today Show, you're a TEDx speaker, you've worked with big companies like Asashi, Westpac, etc. Everyone has a story, Jimmy. You know, what's your story as it relates to, to mental fitness and, and how you've sort of come to do what you do now? Yeah, I mean, that's a feature-length documentary and a full-length best-selling book all in its own, <laughs> but the cliff notes, real, cliff notes real quick for you, I'm pretty average dude. I didn't really know what was happening as I sunk further and further into sadness. And I didn't understand what was happening. I didn't understand that I had depression. I didn't understand I had anxiety. And I definitely didn't know how to get out of it or what to do about it. And I hit rock bottom. I was suicidal. I had, you know, all of the standard things that people have when they get to that sort of state. And I was lucky enough to sort of just have or basically bounce off rock bottom and and go, well, I have to do something here. I have to do something different that makes my tomorrow different from my today because my today sucks. And I was simply looking for answers anywhere I could get them. I didn't care who it was. I didn't care what it was. Just someone give me something to do that's going to make me feel a little bit better. And I bounced around five psychologists who I could just – pretty much lump all together as bloody awful. And then I found a guy who was just really practical, really matter of fact, and said, here's some things that you can do. Go do them. And I was like, do I have to come back next week? And he's like, no, I think we covered most of it today. You go do those things, you'll be sweet. I was like, okay. And so I went away and I started doing them. And now – there's no few things that you can do that magically take someone from suicidal to feeling great. But what they did was they gave me hope and understanding that I could move forward. And so after a week, I was feeling a hell of a lot better than I was. And then a week later, I was feeling better than that. And then I went back and saw him one more time, you know, about six, eight months later. And he's like, yeah, cool. Keep doing those things. And then here's a couple of other things. And so I kept doing those things. And then 
Again, that didn't cure me, didn't make me magically better, but it got me in a place that allowed me to go, well, who else has got some tools for me? And I started picking up tools and things from people all over the place, and I started applying them. And it was that application that changed my outcomes. And the thing that sort of worked and sort of got me to where I am now is it's kind of like those guys that go to the gym. And they start seeing those gains after a couple of months. And then they start just getting addicted to the gains. So I want more gains. Because that's kind of how I felt. I wanted more gains. But what I was, what I did was I kind of, like another physical fitness analogy is like CrossFit. People who go to CrossFit and they're like, I've got all these gains. I love this thing. I'm part of this thing. I'm eating like this now. And they go and tell every bastard on the planet that will listen, this is, this is great. That was how I was with mental fitness. When I found something that I thought was cool, I was like, man, I should share this with everybody. And it turned out that I had a talent for translating technical information, even esoteric information, whatever sort of information I could get my hands on, and just putting it in really simple ways that I could understand first and foremost – And then I shared that with others and they resonated off that too. And that's just my journey and how it continues today. Yeah, well, look, I'm keen to sort of unpack that and go into a bit of detail in a moment. I think stories are powerful, Jimmy. And when I heard your story when we caught up in Auckland, it really smacked me in the face because I don't think you just fell into the state. You got with the curveballs of life that culminated in you becoming suicidal. So can you give a short glimpse as to those sequence of events that then, bang, put you into that sort of state. Yeah, well, I want to first kind of just say that it doesn't have to be big events that put you into that state. I sunk into that state with almost no tangible bad stuff happening to me. I fell into that state just through a lack of understanding and a lack of preparation that allowed me to stay healthy. Mm. It culminated, and in the bit that I use in my talks in order to hammer points home, I I had a really busy three weeks where I delivered all of the branding for the tourism and hospitality side of the Rugby World Cup. A week later, I opened a bar in downtown Auckland. A week later, I got married, which I organized as well. Then not long after, I found out my wife had been cheating on me for eight months, then with our friend, and then she was pregnant, and we had to figure out whose it was, and just absolute chaos, disaster, everything piled on. And that was my, that was, that was the final shove over the edge. But what was interesting is that the shove over the edge, you either fall to your death or you learn to fly. And that's what I decided as I was falling. I didn't actually want to land on the jagged rocks below. I need to learn how to fly real, real quick. Mm. And that's that was sort of my motivation to start figuring out right where can I build where can I build some wings from where can I get a parachute from? Yeah. So no, no. Well, uh, yeah. It seems like you've made uh, you know you've been very curious from that moment, and it'd be great to sort of unpack and talk about a little bit of that about that today. But I mean, can you talk to us about what mental fitness is is distinct to resilience? What are the commonalities? What are the distinctions? Resilience is a real buzzword in the industry for the last probably five years, and it's now become a buzzword just on the national scene where people have just been told to be more and more resilient. COVID, we have to be resilient. We have to be able to take these knocks, and it knocked not only our health, but our businesses and our economies. 
then here in New Zealand, at least, we've had massive climate problems that have brought these cyclones that have devastated our primary industries and then the knock-on effect to all sorts of other industries. Uh, we have a cost-of-living crisis here like you do in Australia, like they do all around the world. And we're just being asked to be resilient over and over and over and over and over and over again. And resiliency in its easiest form, I describe as like boxing, right? The ability to take a punch and then get back up and keep going again. But we're just being asked to take headshot after headshot after headshot after headshot. And that kind of sucks. It's not a fun boxing match when you're the one just getting punched in the face all the time. And so mental fitness is what I describe as the ability to be able to basically see chaos coming and have the perspectives, understandings, and tools to be able to avoid it as it comes, or at least have it glance off. And again, with the boxing analogy, you know, someone like Muhammad Ali is a great example who can duck, dive, slip parry just all of the opponent's punches and really not get hit very often. And if you and I are going to go in the ring, we'd much rather be Muhammad Ali than you and me, right? You and I are going to get punched in the face a lot. Muhammad Ali is going to get out of the way. And so the process of learning mental fitness is the ability to learn tools, techniques, perspectives, observations, and understandings that allow us to see situations unfolding as they unfold and be able to make really clear, confident, rational decisions in those that lead to the best outcomes for us. Yep. Now, fantastic. That's a great analogy you used, but... To go into a bit of granular detail, you, you said you, you learned from the psychologist a few things to do. That worked. He, he threw a few extra, and obviously you've been curious from that moment in time now. Can you give us a bit of a summary of what you do, you know, from your formula to stay mentally fit? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, on its, on its absolute simplest form, one of the first things he said to me was, how much water do you drink? Mm. And I was like, you know, this is a question no other psychologist had asked me. And I said, uh, like, none? He's like, what do you mean, none? I was like, I don't drink any water. He's like, what do you drink? I was like, well, everything else. And he's like, oh, okay. And he obviously knew by that statement that if he told me to drink two liters of water a day, I wasn't just going to magically start drinking two liters of water. And he did what really works for me and so many other people. Instead of telling me what to do, he told me why I should do it. Mm -hmm. And he said, he said cortisol, it's your stress hormone, right? It builds up in your body just through life, through sitting for too long, for dealing with work, all that sort of stuff. And he said there's two main ways you get cortisol out of your body. He said number one is cry it out. And I was like, yeah, that's me. That's what I do, cry it out. And he said number two is to pee it out. So he wow. said you have you have two choices. You can either cry it out or pee it out. Which one do you want to choose? And I was like, pee it out? He's like, cool, drink two liters of water a day. Wow. I'm like, yep. you got me, right? Yeah. <laughs> you got me. You know, that is a very simple start. Now, is two liters of water a day going to absolutely solve your mental health problems? No. No, no, it's not. But it's going to set you on a good a good way to start, mm -hmm. by drinking two liters of water a day, suddenly you drink less soda. 
less sugar, you drink less coffee, less caffeine, you stop overeating instead of snacking, you're actually drinking because you were dehydrated, you weren't actually hungry. You know, you get all of these things. Your skin starts to look nicer. Girls start asking you out more. You know, you just these these benefits come off the back of simply drinking two liters of water. And what drinking two liters of water a day for someone who's down the bottom end of the continuum is just a really good win, right? Because future success is determined by past success. You're much more likely to succeed in the future if you have succeeded in the past, right? And so if you can get small wins with things like just drinking two liters of water a day, Mm -hmm. then when I ask you, hey, we're going to start using the practice of observing our thoughts through mindfulness and meditation for five minutes a day, that's it, Mm -hmm. five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then you're more likely to be in a place where you can go, yes, Absolutely. That is something I can do because I've just proven to myself that I can do with the with the water. Mm-hmm. And so as I as I said in my talk with, with you guys, like absolute two pinnacles in my world for increasing your mental fitness are the ability to observe your thoughts and the ability to regulate your nervous system. Those are the two key underpinnings of anybody's mental fitness. And there's a million different modalities and things you can do on top of those. But if you can learn those two skills, the, you know, it's you're most of the way there. But more importantly, you're most of the way to a, pl- a place, a level where you can do better work. Mm. Right. So when you're in a bad mental state, it's really hard to listen to other people. It's really hard to read books. It's really hard to try and do anything. And so we've got to build slowly, just 1% of the time, get ourselves to levels where we can then actually start doing bigger things to, to make our life better. So if you use meditation to help observe your thoughts, how do you then regulate or work with your nervous system to sort of manage that physiological response to stuff that comes at us? How do you do that? Yeah, so so the ability to observe your thoughts, with if you can practice that through meditation, through mindfulness, through things like that, allows you to be able to separate yourself and have clearer responses instead of reactions mm-hmm. so you get to make you get to make wiser choices and therefore have better outcomes off the back of that mm-hmm. but it's very hard to do that if you are in a sympathetic nervous system state and what that means is if you're in fight or flight and people tend to also think fight or flight is really only that crazy rage state whereas you can be in what's called low level sympathetic nervous system state which is like just sitting at your desk breathing through your mouth tension in your arms because when you're in the sympathetic nervous system state you dump adrenaline mm. so that can make you either jumpy or whatever you can uh, it dumps cortisol your stress hormone so that can make you tight and rigid And then three, it dumps glucose, which can overwhelm your system. Long-term studies shows it can push people into things like diabetes because we're in that state for so long. And so the key is to be able to move yourself from the sympathetic state to the parasympathetic state. Parasympathetic state is your rest, rejuvenation, relaxation state. And I mean, we don't have all day today, but I can tell you how to do this in about two minutes, okay? Real simple, everybody. You can do it through your breath. Mm. You can literally turn off those taps of adrenaline, cortisol, and glucose using a couple of 
conscious, specific breaths. And the research on this is very, very, very sound. And it shows that if you use a thing called the physiological sigh, Mm. that you can move yourself from your sympathetic to your parasympathetic in one to three breaths. And the breath is very, very, very simple. I'll teach it to you all now. It is one inhale through your nose to about 80% capacity, then followed by another inhale through your nose to fill up the whole capacity, and then a long exhale through your mouth. So if you can hear it, it sounds like this. So it's a long inhale, well, it's actually a quick, sharp, 80% full inhale through your nose, fill it up again with another inhale straight away, and then a long exhale through your mouth. And again, the science is robust on this, and it shows that you can move that state in one to three of those breaths. And it turns off the taps, it stops those chemicals, and that allows you to be in a state that can choose better and create better outcomes for yourself, not only physically, but mentally. That's gold, and that probably lends itself nicely to my next question. I've got young kids, and they do PE, so physical education. They do English, they do maths. What I wish they were also doing at school was mental fitness. So they learn like you just described and all the rest of it. So what are your sort of tips around how we help equip our kids with this awareness around mental fitness because, you know, they're faced with different challenges maybe what you and I had when we grew up. You know, what are your sort of thoughts on on helping them with that mental fitness sort of awareness and journey? I uh, have two very close friends. I was with one of them one day and – he got a phone call from his kid's school and his son had had an anxiety attack during cross country. And the school was about five blocks from where we were. So we went over to the school. We found him around the course and we said, we're going to take him home. And I went with them. And so we took this kid home and I had a chat to him in the car and everything. I had a chat to him when he got home. And he went into his room and I had a chat to his mum and dad, who again, very good friends of mine. And they said, to me, anxiety runs in our family. My granddad had it. My parents had it. We've got it. And now our kids have got it. And I said, cool, please show me any research or information anywhere in the world that shows that anxiety is genetic. You cannot find any for me. It is not. And um, I said, what is genetic in feeling is that you teach it to your children. Again, I know these people very well. I said, you are two of the most neurotic people I know on this planet. They run a giant multi-million dollar company. They've got five children. It's absolutely insane. They are forever on edge, and they are teaching this to their children, even not consciously, but energetically. Mm. You can just feel when somebody is anxious around you, and you learn that as a response. Mm. And I said to them, you could give me your child for eight hours a day, and in the time I give him back to you, you would screw him up. Because the parents are the biggest influence on any child's life. Mm -hmm. The parents will teach the children more than any teachers, any books, any anything that they can possibly have, the parents. And the simple answer is you cannot teach what you do not know. Mm -hmm. 
I spoke to 700 assistant principals in a giant hall the other day, and a bunch of them said, can you come and speak to our schools? And I said, there's no point in me teaching stuff to these kids when they're going to go home. I said, the only way I will teach this to the kids is if we do it at seven o'clock at night and it's for the parents Mm -hmm. to come along Mm -hmm. and they can bring their kids if they want. Mm -hmm. And what happens is when they're in there, I say stuff and the parents go, oh, and the kids look at them and go, see, mum, that's what I've been telling you. See, dad, that's what I've been telling you. Mm. These kids are far smarter than we think. Yeah. And we get, and we still, we still need to teach them things. We still need to give them the tools, all of that. But what I'm saying is we, the adults, the parents, mm. are the ones that need to break the cycle. Yeah. We are the ones. My friend of my, a friend of mine, phenomenal teacher, not at school, but of of this sort of stuff, he had his children meditating from three. Wow. He had them doing zero-degree ice baths from three. And they're now like, what are those kids, like eight and six, and super well-adjusted kids. Listen to their parents. Don't yell, scream, have fits. Like, like you know, they're just lovely, well-behaved children because this is a man and his lovely wife who – has skills that he can impart on his children. If you want to do anything for your children, anything, because every parent will say, my children are my world. I love them more than anything. Cool. Go fix yourself so that you can then teach that to your children. That is it. And you can even tell by my tone how much of a rant this is, (laughs) right? This This is a rant because it is so important and parents don't get it because they keep coming up to me and going, my kid, my kid, my kid. And I'm like, cool, where are you on the continuum? And they're like, oh, like, you know, maybe 50. It doesn't really matter. But my kid, (laughs) it does matter. It really, really does. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I love that notion of being aware of, you know, what we're projecting onto our kids. And it's not about solving for the kids. It's about solving for that environment. And obviously, as parents, we control or dictate a lot of that environment and, and atmosphere that people walk into. And, and you can feel it, right? You can feel when there's tension in the air. You can feel when there's a little bit of chill and harmony around. So I actually love that notion of you've actually got to solve yourself or your environment to help your kids. And then also I quit them with some of those things, whether it's, you know, breath work, meditation, exercise, whatever it might be. All the things, yeah. Along the way. So I actually really like that. But you talked about this mental health continuum a couple of times now, Jimmy. Can you just sort of yeah. put a bit of context around that? Yeah. So like about, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, I sort of, in my work in this space, started to really have a problem with the term mental health <laughs> and even mental well-being, but mental health in particular. So if you take if you take mental health and physical health, two things that we've talked about for eons, right? If you look at their brand value over time, the brand value of physical health has just gone up and up and up and up and up. You know, we put this on a pedestal. We talk about it all the time. You said your kid does PE at school. You know, we admire all of the sports people. It is a pedestal thing, physical health. If we talk about mental health, which used to just be on par, over time, that has just been degraded down to a point where when you say mental health, what people think is mental illness. Mm-hmm. When you say Mental Health Awareness Week, really it's Mental Illness Awareness Week. Mm -hmm. 
on the news here in New Zealand, multiple, multiple times I have heard a anchor say the person was suffering from mental health. You know, no, no, no. They might have had a mental illness, but they weren't suffering from mental health, mm. right? And so mental health became binary. Mm. Either you had it or you didn't. You were either mentally ill mm. or you were mentally well. Those were your two choices. Mm. And so I realized that this is not the case. And so that's when I started talking about mental fitness. Mm. The idea that is a continuum, that if you put in small, consistent effort over time, you get fitter and you get all of the benefits of getting fitter. And if you sit there and do nothing, like I did, you will slowly, almost imperceptually move downwards and then end up with all these problems and you like don't even know how you got there. Mm. And so I developed the mental fitness continuum, which was just a continuum to be able to put ourselves on to figure out where we were at and how we could move up. And very simply, I divided it up into five sort of groups of emotions that were told by the top 80 to 100 is contentment. We're just Everything is beautiful. Everything's sweet. 60 to 80 is, is the growth and the happy stage. Oh, yeah, I'm doing good things. 40 to 60 is okay. Everything's just fine. Yeah. 20 to 40 is discomfort. Life sucks. I'm not happy about it. This is annoying. And then severe discomfort is 0 to 20, where everything is horrific and I can't get out of it and I don't know what to do. If you're going to put yourself on the continuum, Basically, it's not where am I today, it's where do I return to the course of like a month? Because we all have good days and bad days, but you know, where do I sit over a month? And the bigger question is, what would my life look like if I could move one category up? And so to me, when I was in severe discomfort for so long, discomfort was paradise to me. Like if I could just get out of the state, um, the world, my world is infinitely different. And then the same thing is if you're just fine and okay, like sure. But if you could get up into happiness and growth, like what's your world going to look like? And then you can get to a point of contentment where life is just beautiful and there's just nothing that can mess with you. And so the continuum is simply a philosophical concept about understanding that small efforts gradually over time mm-hmm. compound mm-hmm. into allowing us to lead a much more contented, happy, beautiful, calm life. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, love it. Love it. So you've done some pretty cool stuff, Jimmy. You know, I understand you, you spent 11 days swimming down New Zealand's longest river. You created, I think, per the Guinness Book of Records, the longest water slide. You also walk the length of New Zealand uh, to encourage connection. Yeah. Why do all that? What is your why? And what have been some of the cool outcomes of, of those sorts of events? Yeah. So the river thing was uh, a little even cooler than swimming. I, <laughs> I, I swam a pool float. So I swam an $8 lilo from the warehouse. <laughs> and uh, it took me 11 days. And the reason I did that, that was my big move to try and make my tomorrow different than my today. So Mm. when I was in a really bad place, I was like, I need to do something different. It needs to be big. It needs to be crazy. And it never meant to be public. Mm. It was Mm. meant to just be an adventure that I went on because I have a history of doing silly, crazy things. But it was just meant to be an adventure that I went on that changed the outcomes of my world and gave me control over things I could control, like my fitness, like my nutrition, like, collecting things to organize to swim a river, like 
wasn't that complicated, but I, it was, I wanted to achieve something. And it blew up to be something much bigger than I ever thought. There was a, a national documentary on it. I wrote a best-selling book about it. I was never a writer. I never, I never wanted to write a book, and a publisher annoyed me for long enough that I said yes. And so when I finished that, that's when I sort of got onto the this this concept of mental fitness, and I wanted to tell the story. I wanted to rebrand mental health to mental fitness, mm. and I wanted to tell the world about it. And the world didn't give a shit; they didn't want to listen. You know, so this was you know nine years ago. The world of mental health has changed so much in the last nine years, and back then, no one wanted to know anything about it. And so, I decided I need to manipulate the media. And if I could manipulate the media into listening to me, then I could talk about this. And so I figured if I had something really cool that they wanted to talk about, then I could just weasel in mm. this thing. And so I just woke up one day and went, I'll build the biggest water slide in the world. Now I have to talk about that. How long was it, just for context? It's 601.98 meters long. It takes about a minute 10 to get to the bottom. You can get up to about 60, 65K an hour. Vertical. It's a 111 vertical meter drop. Uh, so it's about 18%. Yeah. So you had, yeah, you got 20 million views or $20 million worth of coverage. 20 million, yeah. I mean, I got, I got, I got 20 million views on my, on my YouTube video. It got about $20 million worth of media coverage in a calendar year. And, you mentioned that, including nine minutes on the Today Show. Seven of those minutes I got to talk about mental fitness. Seven out of nine on the biggest morning show in the US. You have a Today Show in Australia as well. I was on that a couple of times. Sunrise, yeah, Sunrise maybe, yeah, like with that Carl Sepinovic guy. I was on that one a few times. But literally people from around the world. I was on TV in England and Japan and in all sorts of places. And all of that, my one rule for the media was, yes, I will agree to your interview if we speak 50% about what I'm doing and 50% about why I'm doing it. Yep. And they all agreed to it. And so that allowed me to be able to start, because we said at the start, story matters. Story is how you change culture. Yeah. And so I knew I had to tell the story loudly and, and widely. And then last November, I I sort of realized that we're now past the awareness stage of mental health. We don't need any more awareness. We're all quite aware of depression, anxiety, and all the other things. And we are now lacking is action. Mm. We now need stuff to be done. Mm. And one of the most scientifically robust ways to improve mental fitness is through connection. Connection with the self which is done in that meditation, that mindfulness, that self-love, that self-esteem, self-confidence, all that sort of way. Connection with nature, being part of an environment. There's a whole field called basically get green prescriptions and there's um, all sorts of things done around making sure that we connect with nature to improve our mental health. And then there's connection with others, obviously. Mm. Again, we work better as a tribe. If we fight this stuff together, we get better outcomes. And so I walked the length of New Zealand 325 kilometers in 91 days in order to promote 3,025. 3, 3, wow. So I averaged 38, 38 Ks a day. And through the whole thing throughout throughout New Zealand, I was challenging people to connect. 
And so our connection challenges around the self, around nature, and around each other. And I wasn't asking for any money. I didn't, wasn't asking for any more awareness. I was asking for people to actually go do some things. Yeah, no, awesome. Awesome. I love what you've done on that side of it. And obviously, I'm assuming your purpose or why is to help unpack your learnings and understandings to impact people positively. And we sort of all know how to get no. physically fit. No, that, that was not your, your purpose or your mission. Or, no. no, my why always, before I put some fancy PR spin on the end of it, is to improve my mental fitness. Yeah. I yep. care about everybody secondary yep. to myself. Yeah. And the more I connect to myself, the more I improve my mental fitness, the more I learn and the more ability I have to share that with others. Psychologists show that we uh, affect people, even just the most average person affects people to the third degree. So if you work on improving your, your mental fitness, you improve your son's best friend. Wow. Right. Wow. Yeah. And if you get your son to do it, he improves his his best friend's mother. Yeah. Wow. You know that works around offices. It works around anything else. But I had this talk, and I was saying sort of this message about how you are the most important, mm. and that we're more important than our jobs, our our husbands, our wives, the rugby score. And I said we're more important than our kids. And I said that to four hundred kindy mums. And I just got lasers from their eyes at me, and I got what is my only heckle I've ever had during a talk, and I've done thousands of them. And this woman screams at me from the back of the room, but that's selfish. To which you respond? I said, no. I said, the definition of selfish is to put yourself first to the detriment of others. And I'm not asking you to do that. I am actually asking you to put yourself first for the betterment of others. I'm asking to put yourself first to increase your mental fitness so that you're better at your job, right? So that you're more likely to get a promotion and a pay rise. I'm asking you to put yourself first so you're better husband or wife or partner so that you fight less, you're less likely to get divorced, you have more sex, you get more all of that stuff. I'm asking you to put yourself first to increase your mental fitness so you are a better parent to your child. Mm. I said to her, who would you rather have raising your child? Two parents at 40 or two at 70? Uh, 70, of course. You're going to have a much better outcome with your child if your two parents are at 70 each rather Mm. than at 40 each. Mm, mm, mm. And so their number one job should be figuring out how to get from 40 to 70. Number one job. Yep. No, I love that. And that's sort of like the uh, oxygen mask sort of analogy you know, on a plane. Yeah. You know, look after Thanks. yourself first and Thanks. you're better equipped to help those around you, you know. So I well, think that's another really good sort of point to make. You had on your website, I think, Jimmy, that KPMG note that for every dollar spent on mental fitness, you get a $2.30 to $7, $16 return. Can't understand why NIB Insurance see the value in partnering with you on mental fitness and your take on, you know, return on money invested into mental fitness, you know, initiatives or frameworks. Yeah, so the so the stat from PwC is every dollar returns two dollars and thirty. 
And then the stat from KPMG is every dollar returns returns seven pounds sixteen. Gotcha. So the the truth is the answer is it lies somewhere between two dollars thirty and seven dollars sixteen <laughs> from the two biggest accountancy firms in the entire world. Mm. Now, guess what? Those accountancy firms do not give a shit about your well-being. Mm. They are in it for the money. That is all they care about. They would like to make more money. Any publicly traded company is in it for the money by definition. Mm. By definition, the shareholders are looking for a return on investment. Mm-hmm. That, is our, that is our quarterly growth economy that we have built in our capitalistic society. So there is no altruistic means in here for anything or anybody, which is why it's so cool that they show that for every dollar you are returning 2.3 to 7.1 times in revenue. Mm. Like, it is amazing. There's a really good book called The Happiness Advantage, which is written by a guy called Sean Acor. Yep, from Harvard. Exactly. Harvard, Harvard research, he put together, I think it came out like 2010 or 2011, something like that. Awesome. He put together all the research back then, which there's been probably five times as much done since then. He put all the research together back then and showed over and over again how making happy employees returns you more money. Mm. And he goes through pretty much every different sort of facet of business and how a happier employee in this space is going to be more money in your back pocket. And it's almost like, oh, and that's great. They also get to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, oh, well, as a byproduct, they're, they're also happy. Yeah. But I made more money. Yeah. And that's the cool thing. It does not actually matter which is the chicken and which is the egg. Because it is a mutually beneficial arrangement. Mm -hmm. The problem is we've just moved through from the industrial revolution where widgets and productivity equals output equals profit. Mm -hmm. And so if we can squeeze more out of the, like shrinkflation, we squeeze more out of the product and we can cut it down a little bit more, or we can make the worker work a bit longer or a bit faster, then we make more profit. Mm -hmm. But we barely make widgets anymore. Mm. We make intangible things. You have a recruitment company. Mm. There's no widgets to be produced. The only widget you have is a human being and their performance directly affects the outcome of your business. Mm -hmm. And so if anyone wants to produce widgets anymore, what do they do? They ask China to make them for us. Mm. Right? Yeah. Because that is still industrial revolution, inputs in, cost of goods, profit out. Right? And they put safety nets out the windows so that people don't stop, you know, stop killing themselves, mm. right? But anywhere in this first world, we barely make widgets, and our one biggest overwhelming resource is people. Mm. And the happier the people are, the more mentally fit people are, the better employees they are, the more creative, the more productive, the less sick time, the less turnover. All of those metrics improve and you make more money. Absolutely. No, I, I love it. And I love it that even an accounting firm can put a tangible return 
on that. And like you say, it's mutually beneficial. It's not lopsided, right? Both parties benefit. Absolutely. So it's awesome to see you doing some of that work in that space, mate. Um, what advice would you pass on to a, a younger Jimmy? You know, you've been on this journey, become a graduate of the School of Hard Knocks, you've become curious, you've learned all this stuff. What would you impress on a young 12-year-old or a younger version of Jimmy to help equip that person to take on what's ahead for this guy, which, you know, some pretty heavy stuff as you talk about. We all face different stuff at different times. So words of wisdom would you pass on? Yeah, I mean, it's a loaded question because the simple answer is nothing. I yeah. just let him be. Like, I've had a pretty rad life. Uh, and <laughs> so when my life came crashing down in that one year and pretty much everything that could happen happened – Horrific. Didn't deal with it well. Ended up in horrible places, wanted to do dumb things, all of that sort of carry on. When you looked back, and if you asked me what is the best year of my life, I would say 2010. Best year of my life. Best thing that ever happened to me. And this is, I'll give you this. This is one of my favorite stories from the Tao Te Ching, which is the religious text of Taoism. 3,000-year-old Chinese religion slash mainly philosophy. And the story is called the story of the Chinese farmer. And basically what happens is and there's a farmer, he's got one son, and they live in this little village, and they have one horse, and it gets away, it runs away. And the son comes running up to the dad, 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 the horse has got away, we're ruined, We've, we can't work, we're, we're destitute. This is horrible. And the dad says to the son, uh, maybe. And the son was like, okay. Following day, son comes running back to dad. Dad, 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 guess what? The horse is back. Not only is the horse back, it's brought six wild horses with it. We are rich. We're the richest family in the village. We've got seven horses. This is phenomenal. Life is so good. And dad goes, Maybe. The following day, the son is breaking in these wild horses, gets bucked off, crashes, breaks his leg. And he's crying to his dad, dad, this is horrible. It's such a bad thing. My leg's broken, you know. And dad goes, maybe. Following day, a general from the Chinese army comes in conscripting all able-bodied men for the war. Can't take the son because he's got a broken leg. And he's like, I'm so lucky. This is the best thing ever. And dad says, maybe. (laughs) Good, bad, who knows, right? We don't have the context for good or bad until later on. In 2010, I would just be sitting there telling you, anyone who would listen, bad, 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 bad. Years later, looking back, I'm like, so good. So good, so good, so yeah. good, so good. Yeah. You know, found a much better wife, much happier <laughs> now. <laughs> you know? um, got to go to all, like, all of these things worked out because of, of that. And so that's a lesson that I have learned now. Maybe I'd tell him that story. Maybe, yeah. that's what it, maybe that's what I would tell 12-year-old Jimmy. Yeah. Good news, yeah. bad news, who knows? Yeah. No, I love that. I love the context around, you know, and I think uh, in Sean's book, he talks about this notion of falling up, not falling down. It's when you fall on tough times or trauma hits you, you can spiral down or you can use that as a catalyst to evidently 
you've done that, mate. You've yeah. done a wonderful job and you're impacting heaps of people with your yeah. messages and your learning and all that sort of stuff. So, mate, you've been so kind with your time. Um, for those that want to find out more about the, the cool stuff that you're doing and, and the journey you're on, how do sort of people find out more about uh, how to follow you and sort of stay in touch, Jimmy? Uh, very easy, jimmyhunt.com, J-I-M-I-H-U-N-T.com. I've got free re- resources, free courses. My books are there, my podcast there, my newsletter there. That's a valuable resource. Everything, everything there, jimmyhunt.com. Cool. Well, uh, we'll put some of your social handles perhaps in the show notes further to your website as well, mate. But uh Mate, you're, you're having a huge impact. You're leaving a hell of a legacy. And, yeah, I genuinely believe that, you know, physical fitness is one thing, but without your mental fitness, you know, life's just dramatically different. And having been on both sides of that continuum of, uh, you know, being in a good place or not, you know, I far prefer to be in a better place. So, yeah, some of the things you shared today are, are timely reminders and insights. So I've got no doubt the listeners will benefit from that. So keep away from your magic, mate. And really grateful that you've taken the time to share that appreciate it thank you thanks mate thanks so much for tuning in means the world to me Uh, if you got something of value out of the podcast I'd love you to pay it forward and share it with anyone that might benefit thanks again for tuning in